Hi, everyone. Let me welcome you on behalf of Harvard College Effective Altruism, a student group committed to the idea that we should apply reason and evidence to do as much good as possible. This talk is a part of our fellowship series in which a group of students attends weekly discussions and talks with luminaries such as Darren Asimoglu, Peter Singer, or Steven Pinker. If you are interested in the idea of effective altruism and in the idea of having dinners with such speakers, uh, please don't forget to fill in your feedback form, which is the easiest way to get in touch with us. Um, and I'll give the word to my co-president, Angie, who will tell you about EA Week. So this week is Harvard's first Effective Altruism Week, and we started off our week with uh, Peter Singer on Sunday, and we're now uh, happy to present Professor Darren Achimoglu. He is the Killian Professor of Economics at MIT. In 2005, he received the John Bates Clark Medal awarded to economists under 40, judged to have made the most significant contribution to economic thought and knowledge. Achimoglu is the co-author with Harvard's James Robinson, of the New York Times bestseller Why Nations Fail, in which he argues that economic prosperity is based on strong institutions rather than geography. If we know what makes for great societies, we can then move towards building them. And I'd like to welcome our speaker, Professor Achimoglu. Thank you very much. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm going to talk about some topics that slightly overlap with, uh, with Why Nations Fail. In fact, I'm going to start with uh, some of the ideas from Why Nations Fail, but then uh, quickly move and spend most of my time on uh, some new ideas that uh, my longtime collaborator and co-author on Why Nations Fail, James Robinson, and I have been working on. And, uh, and I hope that uh, those ideas are potentially interesting for you to sort of thinking about not only the issue of uh, prosperity and, and other differences across nations, but also some of the issues that I think are at the center of the effective altruism debate and, 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 and group. Uh, the starting point of, uh, of the book and a lot of the research that James and I have done is the uh, huge variety of outcomes that you observe around the world today. We live in an increasingly globalized, connected, unified world, but if you look at it economically, there are huge differences between nations. Today, Countries such as the United States, Canada, or Switzerland have income per capita about 40 times as large as those of some of the poorest nations in the world, such as Haiti, Mali, Somalia, uh, and so on. But more importantly, perhaps, than income per capita differences, which was what we emphasized in Why Nations Fail, is also the fact that the lives of people are incredibly different across these places. So if you look at, for instance, security of people's lives and actions, protection against violence, freedom to be able to speak one's mind, express uh, 
congregate with other people for political or non-political reasons. And also access to a variety of public services such as education, infrastructure, health, clean water that we take for granted. Those things are hugely different across countries. In fact, some of the differences such as access to education, access to health services, sanitation, are clearly related to the prosperity differences that we observe around us. So why are this, there such huge differences? And what can be done about it? Now, the thesis of why nations fail, which I'm going to recap very quickly and build on at some, uh, at some level, is that most of these differences should be understood as the outcomes of institutional differences. By institutions, we mean the organization of society in different spheres of life, rules that are formal and informal that have been set by individuals themselves, of course over time, not in an instant, but then guide and regulate how these individuals behave in their economic, social, and political lives. In particular, we put a lot of emphasis on economic institutions which determine, for example, whether individuals have secure property rights, whether they have the ability to enter into occupations and businesses in the way that they wish, and whether they have access to courts that are unbiased and are going to uphold contracts that are so important for modern business, whether they have access to educational resources that are going to create a level playing field. Those sorts of institutions we've called inclusive economic institutions, and we've contrasted them with what we call extractive economic institutions, which are essentially, of course, a simplification, an ideal type. Uh, the reality is in the shades of gray, but if you want to sort of uh, have an easy way of sort of communicating these ideals, extractive economic institutions are at the other end of the spectrum than the inclusive economic institutions. Instead of secure property rights, there is insecure property rights. People are not sure that they can enjoy the fruits of their investments in their land, in their businesses, even in their uh, own human capital. There is monopoly rather than competition, often uh, advantaging, uh, disadvantaging some people and to the advantage of others. There is not an uh, unbiased legal system. In, in fact, sometimes the letter of the law, often the implementation of the law, is very much against some people and in favor of others. And, and the sort of educational resources that create a level playing field are absent, making way instead to a very tilted playing field. This description also hints at that in many instances, these extractive economic institutions are not there by mistake, but they are there to look after the interests of some people at the expense of the rest of society. Uh, to make it a little bit more concrete and to sort of uh, segue into what I want to talk about, you know, you can think of a specific instance of extreme, but specific instance of extractive economic institutions. Let's take, for example, slavery. For instance, if you take the plantation economies that were so important in the 17th and 18th centuries in the Caribbean, for example, Barbados, those are an archetypal example of extractive economic institutions. 
80% of the island of Barbados, for example, in the 17th century were slaves. Not only did they not have secure property rights to such things as land or business, but they did not even have property rights on their own labor or human capital. They were forced to work in plantations and at very, very low wages and under very, very harsh conditions. And that was the reason why many slaves died before the age of 30. They were not even allowed, let alone having access to uh, educational resources, they were not even allowed to invest in their education in many cases. And obviously things like uh, uh, unbiased legal system were all uh, uh, bygone conclusion. And, uh, and, 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 and when you think about this systems, clearly a very tilted playing field for the advantage of the non-slaves in the population, and at great cost for the slaves. Now, actually, when you look at the details of what went on in Barbados, it wasn't that the 20% that weren't slaves were the main beneficiaries. They benefited in one way or another, perhaps. But the main beneficiaries were a handful of families that were the major landowners. And Barbados, by the way, during this time period, became one of the richest countries in the world. But it did so enriching these major landholders that uh, own the biggest plantations, the most uh, f- uh, productive land for sugar plantation in particular on the island, and, and certainly the slaves, and often, in fact, some of the non-slaves did not hugely benefit from this uh, fairly substantial prosperity that Barbados created. How did such economic institutions remain in place? Certainly not because the slaves were happy slaves that wanted to go along with a system that killed them before the age of 30. Uh, it certainly wasn't because there was some sort of uh, consensus on these being the best institutions for the island in some sense. No, instead, there were uh, these economic institutions were embedded in a system of political uh, power and political activities, which I'm going to call political institutions. And it was a very specific set of political institutions that maintained the extractive economic institutions. So if you look at the Barbados example, what you see is is a political system that very strongly empowered precisely those few families that were the major landholders. So if you look at the governor of the island and the legislature of the island, which held some of the formal power, they came mostly from these major planters. But more important, perhaps, than the governor in many instances was the army, because, uh, in fact, underscoring what I just said, that the slaves weren't happy with this system, you know, uh, slave revolts were a very common occurrence in all of the Caribbean and, and, and including Barbados, even if not to the same extent as some of the other islands like Haiti and Jamaica. So the control of the means of violence was certainly very central. And... Uh, and the army was controlled by these planters. So the top generals came from the same families that controlled the governorship and the legislature. What about the legal system? What decided what was legal, what was not, and how to educate the disputes between people, between planters, as well as among uh, the population at large? Well, the top judges also came from, from the same families. So this sort of political system, which is again admittedly an extreme one, which concentrates political power in the hands of a small group for uh, lack of a better term, I'm going to call extractive political institutions. And then again, at the other end of the spectrum, the other ideal type, 
I'm going to call inclusive economic, inclusive political institutions. Inclusive political institutions in particular, as this contrast suggests, has one pillar, which is that political power is going to be distributed diffusely and there are going to be constraints on the exercise of that power. So in particular, think of your ideal working democracy. It may not exist on this planet, but you know, at least we can envisage how a democracy would exist. People would have one, 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 one vote, one person, one vote will participate in democracy. They will be able to form civil society organizations. And when we delegate decisions to a particular representative, that representative is still under our control rather than being able to use that five-year or four-year period for personal enrichment or pursuing projects that we don't want. So that sort of system you know, I don't know what the best word for it is, but, but in Why Nations Failed, we call pluralism because there is a plurality of interests, plurality of opinions that are all uh, impactful uh, rather than this sort of extreme concentration of political power under one set of economic interests, under one sort of social class as in the, uh, as in the <coughs> uh, uh, Barbados example. But we also noted, though in hindsight we did not uh, give it its full due, we noted in a number of places and developed it in, in, in some details in Why Nations Fail, that this was only one of the pillars of inclusive political institutions, but you needed something else. And that something else was some degree of political or state centralization. Some ability of the society to concentrate both the means of violence, what Max Weber identified as the one defining characteristic of state, but even more than that, also the ability, the capacity of that state to be able to use whatever power it had over its territory to regulate activity, to provide public services, to, uh, again, adjudicate disputes, and so on and so forth. And we've pointed out and we spent some time on arguing that there are societies such as, for example, uh, modern-day Somalia, where, you know, when you look at it, there isn't a very well-defined elite uh, like what you would see in Sudan or what we would see in Egypt or in some uh, Central American countries or in Barbados, which dominates everything for its advantage, but still, politically, everything is quite chaotic because no state centralization is is feasible you know political power is 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 tightly controlled by clan families or tribal structures and this uh, avoids any sort of ability of the state to play any sort of role in providing public services or resolve disputes and as a result disputes are resolved by feuds or by infighting within clans or between clans and so on and so forth so we've sort of emphasized that uh, those, that sort of state centralization is an important part of the political institutions that we come back to it in various different parts of the book. But by and large, we did not fully incorporate uh, a theory of how is it that this state centralization or state building takes place. And this is what I want to talk about in the rest of today's uh, today's talk and, and, and also, uh, of course, whatever you want to talk about in the discussions, but, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of, uh, questions on this. And there are several reasons for that. First reason is that when I started, I put the emphasis not just on the distribution 
and dispersion of prosperity across nations, but this dispersion of control of violence, public services, uh, security, lack of uncertainty or predictability in people's lives. All of these are squarely related to some sort of state capacity. I don't want to claim, and it's certainly not true, that there aren't stateless societies or there weren't stateless societies that have been able to set up some sort of order. But if you look at it by, by, by through uh, you know, uh, broad brush strokes, by and large, stateless societies have their citizens face much greater uncertainty, uh, much lower probability of being able to... Uh, <coughs> have some security of their economic objectives, but also much higher probabilities of being assaulted, being uh, being killed, and so on and so forth. And certainly for public services, those are uh, even uh, totally largely unheard of in societies where either the states are absent or extremely weak. So if you look at it today, you know, again, in our super developed, super globalized 21st century where, you know, people talk of the East-State in, uh, in, in, in Western societies, still around the world, perhaps uh, 40% of the population of the world lives under conditions where the capacity or even the presence of the state is very tenuous. The most sort of... Uh, uh, <clears throat> The, the, the easiest examples would be things like Afghanistan or Somalia or Haiti, but even in relatively well-functioning societies in certain respects, such as Colombia, you know, uh, or Mexico, or uh, semi-functioning societies like India, Pakistan, you will have that large fractions of the population are essentially outside the reach of the state and with some degree of detriment for their ability to, uh, to pursue their economic objectives and often even greater detriment for them to be able to achieve a uh, predictable, secure, violence-free life. So the question I want to pose is, why is it that it is so difficult, it's been so slow throughout history, and today even it's quite uh, uh, quite absent to see this state-building process? Why is it that the whole world is not covered by states that have great capacity to control violence, to regulate economic and social activities, to... <clears throat> Uh, provide public services uh, if, if, they, if they desire. And that's going to be part of the question, if they desire. Uh, so, so we want to understand this, 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 uh, this, this question. So one hypothesis you could come up with would be that this must be just a difficult process and we're like in the midst of it. And that would be based on a view that says, well, you know, every dictator, every statesman, whether democratic or autocratic, would like to have as much state capacity as possible. After all, state capacity is defined as the ability of the state to do more things, regulate if it wants to, control violence if it wants to, provide public goods if it wants to. Who wouldn't want to have greater capacity? And in fact, you could even sort of uh, conjecture that, uh, sort of... uh, 
dictatorial autocratic states are particularly good at building this state capacity. That was implicitly the thesis of the Harvard political scientist Samuel Huntington in his political order uh, 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 <clears throat> book and, and, and has sort of been picked up by his student Francis Fukuyama, for example, that somehow, you know, uh, <clears throat> dictators and autocrats may be unpleasant people, but they are absolutely necessary because we need this process of creating borders and having this monopoly of violence and perhaps having this state capacity. So what I'm going to argue, in fact, is quite different from that. I'm going to argue that, in fact, there are very specific reasons why extractive political institutions or political institutions that lack pluralism are going to have a hard time building state capacity. And in particular, <clears throat> I'm going to argue that state capacity in general emerges, at least in the way that we sort of identify with the outcomes that I started with at the beginning, control of violence, public services, security, predictability in our lives, when there is some degree of pluralism, and moreover, together with that degree of pluralism, there is a strong civil society, and in particular a civil society that has developed both a sense of generalized rights, which I'm going to define, and also ways of protecting those generalized rights, which again I'm going to be able to, I'm, I'm going to try to be uh, more specific about. So therefore, what I want to argue, at least, you know, not convince you because this is a very short talk and these are very sort of uh, new ideas, uh, current research of ours and others, but at least sort of plant some ideas and get some discussion started is that in some sense political scientists such as Sam Huntington and, and, and his followers have the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, the other way around. Uh, and, and we're trying to get the horse before the cart, uh, that, that the view that the best way of building a state through autocratic uh, uh, means is, is actually quite mistaken, and those states are going to be stunted in some very specific ways. And by stunted, what I mean is that although they might have some capacities, although they might have strong armies, although they might appear quite dictatorial, their ability to do a lot of things and their capacity is actually going to be quite limited. And to do that, actually, I'm going to start the argument from the other end. So what I'm going to argue first is that there are... If you look at around you, and if you look at throughout history, <clears throat> you're going to see a lot of states that are stunted, but there's going to be a difference between those that are stunted from the bottom and stunted from the top. So first I'll try to describe what I mean by that, and then I will try to argue that in fact there is a common reason for why there are these two sorts of stunting and, and then 
once I put those ideas on the table, then I move on to explain why is it that this outcome is avoidable. In fact, <clears throat> there are natural dynamics for these outcomes to be uh, prevented when you have a political system that has these pluralistic elements and a civil society that develops these notions of rights. So, what do I mean by stunted from the bottom? So, what, do I, what I mean by that is, <clears throat> is actually probably best illustrated if you look at uh, uh, some of the remnants of stateless societies that have uh, that, 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 that are still with us, but many of them were even more uh, sort of uh, <clears throat> easily observed by anthropologists in the uh, first, half of the, uh, first half of the 20th century. And what sort of uh, anthropologists have sort of discovered, and then this, was, this has been supported by some archaeological evidence, is that many, uh, <clears throat> many of these stateless societies where you have a tribal structure that are fairly egalitarian, uh, that are often engaged not in very complex uh, uh, economic activities such, such as agriculture, but are more at the hunting and gathering stage, is that they make great efforts to actually prevent inequality from emerging. And it's not just economic inequality, and it's often it's in fact political inequality. One example, for instance, that has been very well studied is the pre-colonial society of Tiv in Nigeria, and uh, and many uh, and a number of uh, 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 anthropologists, most uh, most importantly uh, John and uh, Lisa Bohanon, uh, spend a lot of time with the Tiv uh, uh, studying their uh, 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 their social organizations, and essentially what you see among the Tiv is that you have this whole complex set of social organizations, many of them religious in nature, but in many, and, and some of them very much uh, 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 engaged with superstition. But at first, even though at first they might look very illogical and silly, they actually have a purpose. And the purpose that Bohanons identified is that these arrangements are often ways of preventing any given individual from accumulating too much political power. For instance, there is this whole notion of uh, <coughs> witches and bringing sort of lots of witchcraft in these societies. But when you look at when, how, how are these sort of witchcraft accusations are used, they are often used against people who become richer who start accumulating resources and who start accumulating political power. And the, you see many other stateless societies that have similar arrangements. Why is it that such arrangements have emerged and persisted? And I think what many anthropologists sort of loosely uh, sort of explain this by is that these societies have in their DNA a great aversion to any one individual becoming politically powerful, forming their dynasty, forming their kingdom, forming their uh, their uh, their sort of uh, uh, dominance over over these uh, over the rest of society. Why is it that they are so worried about this? I think our explanation would be that 
these societies don't have the political institutions to be able to control any one individual or family or group of individuals who become extremely politically powerful. Once one individual becomes politically powerful, they are afraid that that political power is going to be used against the rest of society. So therefore, their strategy is to nip it in the bud and prevent any individuals from accumulating too much political power. So when they see any individual or any family accumulating economic resources, they immediately go against them. They gang up against that family or group in order to prevent that political power inequality to emerge. So that is, of course, a recipe for preventing any sort of state centralization or state capacity to emerge, because unless you have some hierarchy in society, you're not going to have the uh, state-like functions emerging, and with, unless you have these proto-state state, state sort of arrangements, of course you're not going to have the later stages of this state capacity emerging. Now, this might appear as some very peculiar story about some stateless societies that disappeared uh, hundreds of years ago and many of them decades ago. But in fact, you see many modern versions of that. One example of a modern version is Lebanon. So Lebanon in many ways is a modern society. But if you look at how the society is organized, it's organized along ethnic lines with many, many different uh, groups, you know, the Sunnis, the Shiites, the uh, Orthodox Christians, and the Maronites, and the Druzi being the, uh, the most major ones. But these groups make very great effort in order to prevent any one other ethnicity or any one group within those ethnicities from accumulating too much power. The whole constitutional structure in Lebanon is organized around those lines. For example, the president has to be a Christian, the prime minister a Sunni Muslim, the speaker of parliament a Shiite Muslim, and a lot of other social and political arrangements are made in order to preserve this balance. The most peculiar one, perhaps, is that Lebanon has not had a census since 1932. Why is that? Well, because if you have a census, you'll see that population uh, composition has changed, but if population composition has changed, political power has to shift, and some groups are going to become more powerful, and that's what the society is trying to sort of prevent from happening. But, of course, this is quite costly, it's quite costly. You know, economic decisions are very difficult. It's very difficult. The parliament is very dysfunctional. Uh, it takes an uh, awfully long time for a budget to pass. I think the last time one was passed successfully was about 15 years ago. Uh, and, uh, and, and monopoly of violence is totally absent. You know, it's like Hezbollah-like organizations. And, and other groups have also their own militias, the Durzu and the Maronites and the Christians, uh, and as well as, of course, the Sunni. Uh, and those militias uh, play the role of law enforcement and so on and so forth. So those are examples of, <coughs> examples of stunting from the bottom. Those are examples where society prevents political inequality from emerging because there is a fear that that political inequality, once it emerges, uh, will, will be used against the society itself. But how does this feed into what I started with at the beginning or, or, or not at the beginning, but at the beginning of this part of the lecture, where I said, well, even 
dictators who have ostensibly some control over society are not going to be the great agents of state building, state capacity expansion in society. And the reason for that is really, I will argue, a mirror image of what I try to explain with the stunting at the bottom. Essentially, although dictators appear you know, powerful, it is often some coalitions in society that maintain them in place. And that's why many dictators, many autocrats, are always afraid of losing their political power. And that also implies that they have to tread particularly carefully when what they are trying to do will disrupt the balance in society. So in many cases, what this implies is that dictators can remain in power, and this is not just for dictators. In some cases, this might be some democratically elected or, 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 or at least ostensibly democratically elected leaders, can remain in power because there is a very diverse coalition. And state capacity building or state building and including uh, 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 attempts to build a monopoly of violence where political power, law enforcement means are concentrated in the hands of state functionaries that are responsible to that leader or, democrat or, or, or autocrat, are often going to disrupt that coalition and are going to turn parts of the society against that leader. Why? Part of it is because you know, there are parts of society that gain great advantage from being the armed militias or the landlords that have their own political and military force. But part of it is also that, again, exactly like the Tiv or the Lebanon, there is a fear that any process of further state building is going to start new political dynamics that ultimately will lead to the politically powerful actors being able to do more at the expense of the existing arrangements. So, for instance, in places like uh, uh, the Philippines or Pakistan, the center often rules at least parts of the country through, uh, uh, <coughs> through armed gangs that are really not so responsible to the center. You know, you can see that in the case of Pakistan, for instance, most clearly in, uh, in, the, in places like Balochistan or Waziristan, where, you know, uh, the, the ability of the state to even sort of uh, project its military power is very, very limited. You see that in places like the Philippines or Mexico, where, uh, you know, uh, to many areas, you know, there is an implicit arrangement that some power brokers, and those power brokers could be, <coughs> uh, uh, could be local landowners or local intermediaries are, <coughs> uh, are doing the ruling and then they deliver votes or they, they deliver support to the central government. And you have versions of that in places like Colombia, for example, where right-wing paramilitary groups, uh, as, as, uh, as recently as the mid 2000s controlled about 35% of the country and uh, and in the in the in the in the words of one of the uh 
leaders of the paramilitaries is that it says 35% of Congress was elected in areas where uh, there were states of the self-defense groups. Those are the uh, right-wing paramilitaries. In those states, we were the ones collecting taxes. We delivered justice. We had the military and the territorial control of the region, and all the people who wanted to go into politics had to come and deal with the political representatives we had there. And this is in a country like Colombia, where if you go and visit Bogota, you'll see a very modern, very well-functioning, high-speed internet, uh, modern businesses, modern law practices, and everything. So this sort of paints a picture that state capacity building is actually a very difficult process. So in that light, I want to come to the last part of, uh, of, uh, of, of the talk, which is how is it that states are actually built. What is that process, and why did I claim that pluralism and rights have an important role in this? And I think uh, I can be relatively quick on this, because I have already sort of tried to communicate the main ideas. And the main ideas are essentially the mirror image of what I have argued for the stunting from the top and from the stunting from the bottom. What did I argue? I argued that Many societies are trying to prevent some individual from some groups from becoming politically powerful because they're afraid of that group being able to exercise political power once they become more powerful. And I've also argued that the same considerations make many leaders quite hesitant in rocking the boat of the coalition and the political power configuration that has brought them to power and keeps them in power because if they try to build a more modern state, more capacity, state capacity, that's going to create risks that they will use that power against their erstwhile allies and that will in turn uh, solidify and cement the opposition against them and they don't want to rock the boat. But this narrative also suggests one place in which society may not as much object to the building of state capacity or whatever proto-state institutions exist becoming more powerful, taking the uh, 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 <coughs> trappings of a modern state and, and increasing its ability to regulate economic and social activities and so on and so forth. And that's a situation in which you are sure or at least you are fairly uh, confident that once the state becomes powerful, you can control it. So in other words... The reason why I am claiming that pluralism is an important element in state capacity is that you need to have some nascent form of pluralism in place so that people have the belief that they are able to control the state as the state is getting stronger. But once you put it this way, you will also realize that this is not just a static or a one-step process. Nascent pluralism itself might be sufficient to control a state that does a few activities, but think of a modern state like the one in the United States or Germany or, 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 or Australia, which is doing a bewildering array of activities, controlling 40% of GDP, probably 60% of GDP through all the contracts and all the political influence. You need a much, much stronger ability to control that state, its, uh, its politicians, its bureaucrats. So therefore, the picture has to be one in which pluralism, the ability of political institutions to distribute power broadly, 
and also control power holders has to develop hand in hand together with state capacity. And to be more specific about what I want, what I'm trying to explain here, is let me pick one example, which is the building of state capacity in, in early modern England. And, you know, early modern England is an example that we give quite prominently in why nations fail, because it's one of the countries that made the first important advances towards pluralistic political institutions in the form of parliament, especially after the Glorious Revolution. And we emphasize there that this did come with state building. But in fact, the, the picture is even more interesting than uh, what we emphasized in, in the book. And I think uh, it's actually not a new one for uh, historians or economic historians. A very interesting book by the historian John Brewer sort of uh, recounts the building of the fiscal capacity of the English state. And this is actually a very interesting story, and as soon as I think I'll, I'll give you the few details about it, you'll realize why it's both at first puzzling, but also hopefully consistent with what I'm trying to tell you. So just an extremely quick history. You know, the 1688, the Glorious Revolution, was a major political event, a revolution, so to speak, uh, in, 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 in England which brought Parliament and uh, deposed kings and brought uh, the principle of limited uh, monarchy, constitutional monarchy. And it was triggered by the uh, attempts of Charles II and then later James II, the Stuart monarchs, to increase their power at the expense of society, uh, both at the expense of society and at the expense of parliament, which was, uh, you know, an institution that had been becoming strong uh, uh, ever since the Tudor period, uh, about 100 years before that. But, you know, if you have a James II-like quasi-despotic King who is trying to build a strong army and, uh, and, and, and control resources, get loans, forced loans from some businesses. Uh, you know, you would think that once the Glorious Revolution happens and Parliament becomes powerful, what you're going to see is that you're going to see lower taxes. Because now you've sort of uh, pushed down the Leviathan. But in fact, what John Brewer shows is exactly the opposite happens. At the time of James II, uh, taxes in GDP in, uh, in, uh, in, in, in England is actually slightly lower than France. In the next 15 years, they almost treble. They increase by threefold. What's going on? What, was it not the parliament that organized the civil war against James II in order to sort of prevent him from acquiring economic and social and political power? So why is it that now taxes are exploding? And, and, and essentially John Brewer's story, although he's not totally explicit on this, so this is my interpretation of his story, is that after 1688, Parliament thinks it can control the purse itself. Once you control the purse itself, once you control how the state is going to raise the money and how it's going to spend it, you don't mind it. It was James II who you were afraid you couldn't control, that you did not want to have power, but your own representatives... Once you are cons- uh, confident that you can control them, you don't mind it so much. So if that's the story, you know, <clears throat> you need this sort of pluralistic political institutions that are going to give a guarantee that 
once the state becomes powerful, you're going to be able to control it. But at the end, this is not enough. You know, you can say there is a parliament and the parliament is powerful. But, you know, who cares? There was a parliament under James II, and James II could have declared that parliament is powerful. But the reality is, of course, determined not just by constitutional arrangements. The same constitutions, the same things written on parchment will be implemented in very different ways. It is determined in a sort of a political equilibrium in which the mobilization of society itself will play a central role. And this is where uh, the emphasis on rights that I mentioned at the beginning comes in, and that's the last thing I want to sort of discuss, and then I will conclude. <clears throat> so, at the end, the real effective political control on the state apparatus and on the leaders and the politicians and the bureaucrats who control the state is going to come from civil society from the ability of the people who are not themselves bureaucrats, who are not themselves politicians, being able to somehow organize, acquire information, and uh, communicate their wishes, and if necessary, go on in the streets and, uh, and, and protest. But how is it that civil society will organize this? And what are the means via which civil society will be able to react to usurpations of power to, ex to the state or its representative exceeding their power. And I think one way in which that happens, a central way in which that happens, according to both you know, some conceptual arguments, which I'm not going to go into, but in some empirical uh, historical evidence, is this notion of generalized set of rights evolving and becoming enshrined as central parts of the organization of civil society. What I mean by generalized rights is the following. You know, if you look at every society, you can loosely identify some rights. You know, if you look at uh, southern slavery before the Civil War, slaves had, slaves had rights. You know, if the slaves did uh, what they wanted, what, what their uh, masters told them to do, they also had rights that, for example, when women had children, they had the right not to work for a certain period of time. But these are not very generalized rights. They are very role-dependent rights. They are very much dependent on you obeying some set of very well-defined political hierarchy within that society. Instead, contrast that to generalized rights of the form of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of uh, non-discrimination against ethnic minorities, gender uh, on the basis of gender, sexual preference, or religious beliefs. Those are generalized rights in the sense that they are not dependent on individuals obeying some other parts of the social uh, hierarchy. So in other words, it's not that as a gay person you have the right to be gay if you, on the other hand, also obey some other uh, traditional roles. So we have some rights that we think are totally independent of how the rest of 
the social and political equilibrium works. And we think, or not we here is, of course, a nebulous we, some society, some civil society organizations, think that freedom of speech or freedom of expression or freedom of religion are sort of rights that cannot be trampled upon. Why are these important? Well, the reason why those are important is that they create broad coalitions in society such that if any group, in particular state-related actors, leaders, politicians, bureaucrats, use their now, by now substantial power in society going against certain groups, then they are going to trigger broad-based reactions from civil society. Broad-based reactions because if, for example, the state uses its political power to go against freedom of religion of a group that's only 5% of society, it won't be just that 5%, but much broader parts of society that will react to it. And I would, in fact, surmise that freedom of property rights, ability to actually take part in economic activities is also part of those rights in at least well-functioning uh, societies that have the right sort of combination of economic and political institutions. But let's leave that aside for now. But you see the logic of this and why that's important. And I think why that's important is perhaps best captured by this very well-known saying by uh, uh, Pastor Martin Niemöller, who sort of was commenting on the on the, on the sort of uh, how the Nazis came to power and, 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 and civil society buckled in front of them, was that, uh, <clears throat> you know, he says, uh, you know, first they came for the communists and I did not speak up because I was not a communist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. And then when they came up for me, there was nobody to speak up for me. So the idea here is that when there weren't these generalized rights that were strongly supported by civil society, any group that controlled the, uh, the state strongly enough and wanted to use it for, uh, for its own purpose, in this case the Nazis, could go after one group after another, and each group being a minority would not have the power to stand up against the state. But if you have this generalized rights notion that empowers civil society, then the ability of the state or the politically powerful actors to use that capacity is going to be limited. And again, just like pluralism, these notions of civil strong, strong civil society and the generalized rights, then is going to permit greater capacity of the state because the same principle, if you know you can control it, you can allow the state to have greater capacity to provide the public services to do better uh, uh, education of disputes and so on and so forth. But the story doesn't end there because what the story also indicates is that there is a causal arrow going in the opposite direction also. If pluralism permits state capacity because it controls state capacity, as state capacity builds up, that will also create an impetus for greater pluralism. If rights support state capacity, then as state capacity builds up, that's going to create a greater impetus for these rights to be well-defined. Why? Just for the simple reason that once state capacity 
gets stronger and stronger, you are going to be in a situation where your existing pluralistic institutions and your existing strength of civil society is not going to be sufficiently powerful to withstand it, so you need to strengthen them also. So that therefore the picture that emerges, and there are many historical examples, which I don't have the, right, the time to go through it, but the picture that emerges is one in which the state capacity building and avoidance of this stunting from the bottom or from the top that I talked about requires, necessitates this balanced development of political institutions, pluralistic institutions, and state capacity, and civil society and generalized rights. And what this is very important, I think, and entirely sort of a new area, is that then it opens up our a whole host of questions about how we can try to improve the environment around us. Because if it's just about historically determined aspects of institutions, changing those is much harder. But building up civil society and building up state capacity, both of them are useful for certain, re certain reasons. State capacity because it's going to provide better public services, better law enforcement, better uh, uh, <coughs> dispute resolution. But it has a dark side. If you empower the state, who controls the state? So it needs to go hand in hand with these strengthening of civil society, but civil society strengthening also has its own direct benefits because it will enshrine these values that are so important for the, uh, for the modern sort of uh, uh, living, but also it will then imply a more secure environment from uh, abuses of power by the states and by the bureaucrats and by the people who are politically powerful. So I'll just uh, conclude at this point and, 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 and take your questions on this point. One thing that I did not touch on, and, and, and I'll, uh, I, can, I, can, I can answer that if you have any questions on that, is how this sort of squares with uh, examples of you know, rapid uh, economic development and, and, and in that process rapid uh, political uh, state building that goes on under some dictatorships or under some extractive political institutions. And, and of course, my answer is implicitly that that uh, quickly runs into these stunting constraints, but we can talk more about that. Thank you. How do I do? Do I take the questions myself or? Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, <clears throat> I think, you know, uh, the, the picture I have tried to paint is one of possibility, not necessarily one of easy optimism. You know, Venezuela is just one of several countries, including Turkey, including Russia, including Hungary, uh, <clears throat> uh, including Venezuela, including Argentina, where, uh, autocrats with some popular support are using their political power precisely to decimate those sorts of civil society, pluralistic institutions, and notions of generalized rights. And I think 
uh, that's an extremely dangerous process, and at the end it's going to come down to whether that can be sort of resisted. So essentially that's, a, that's a, you know, what I try to describe as a good case scenario was that balanced uh, race between strength of civil society and the pluralistic political institutions and power of the state. Imagine that what happens is for a variety of reasons, and I think the reasons are somewhat different in Venezuela than in, in Russia, but for a variety of reasons, you find yourself in a situation where the people, the person controlling the state has a lot of power temporarily, and the civil society has not kept up with it. Then you, you can turn around and use that power precisely to decimate part of the civil society that will later become constraints on him. So I think that's what Chavez very successfully did, but to a limited extent, because he was somewhat more secure in his position, and Maduro is now being more threatened, is doing it more violently and more viciously in some sense. And, and I think the same thing is, is quite true in Turkey, and perhaps a little bit uh, more nuanced, but also in places like uh, Hungary. Yes, please. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to that. I think, I think uh, the reason why I said, in some sense, that you know, uh, so let me take one step back. I mean, I hinted at this, but I was not very clear about it. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, we wrote "Why Nations Fail" because we had a firm belief that these institutional factors, which are clearly man-made, are what determine whether a society is prosperous. But at the end of the day, if you look at the book, you will see that we do not come up with any clear policy recommendations. We have a chapter on policy, but it's dedicated at saying, well, if you buy this framework, here are some dumb ideas you should avoid, rather than saying, well, here is a recipe uh, for how you can build more inclusive institutions. And it's just really hard you know, to start building institutions that are such complex things. I think I will certainly say that we're, we will never have any recipe, any sort of silver bullet, this is how you fix institutions in any place. But this sort of thinking of this interplay of civil society and states at least gives you a little bit more of a starting point. So, for example, one thing you can do if, it, every, if all the stars were right aligned is you could go to a local area where you have a total lack of resources and total lack of <clears throat> public services. And you can see if you can start building some state capacity while at the same time building together with it the control mechanism for state capacity. That's very different from saying, you know, for example, in, uh, in, <clears throat> in the Philippines, you know, uh, the local... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, there are very little local uh, local public goods and the central state cannot go there, so let's give all of the power to some of the local families, like the Ampatuan family. So what that happens is that Ampatuan family, uh, which you may have heard of because they were the ones who massacred about uh, 40 people just for because of a little political whim, uh, totally with great impunity about two years ago, 
you know, they become the, they may provide some public services, but they become totally an unchecked power in the local area. So the sort of the, the solution here is that rather than sort of create local dictators, you try to create local capacity together with the control mechanisms for it. It's not an easy process. That's why I'm saying it's not a silver bullet, but at least it sort of starts uh, opening up new sort of questions. Yes, please. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I certainly did not mean to suggest that, <clears throat> you know, consensualism is that, you know, you have to bring all of the ethnic group together, and, uh, and there's a huge debate in political science, international relations, some people being in favor of it, some people being great critics of it. Uh, uh, all I wanted to point out that that is a very fragile system and it's not very good at providing public goods or, uh, or even the monopoly of violence and, 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 and a lot of even very straightforward things like you know, uh, 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 you know, passing a budget you know, are seriously hampered because of this very uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, fragile structure that is trying to achieve this balance. Now, the way to forward, but again, it's even harder in a situation that is so ethnically divided and such hostilities are, are present, is that at the same time as you let one party become more powerful, you build the institutional and civil society prerequisite for controlling it, but that's just a very difficult thing to do somewhere in a place like, uh, like, uh, like, like Lebanon, where you say, okay, we give up this... Uh, very divided government, and we let a party, say, associated with the Shiites or the Hezbollah, control both the presidency and the prime ministership, but at the same time, we, we strengthen civil society to control them. Well, that's just like pie in the sky. That's not going to be possible anytime soon. But, but perhaps you can start at the local level. You know, one thing that, again, is very much, you know, uh, 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 <coughs> sort of new research that uh, several people are doing, James and I are trying to do with some co-authors also, is sort of the local basis of politics. So perhaps some of these things are easier to do at the local level, and then once you do it at the local level, you can sort of trans translating it, but, but Lebanon would be one of the hardest cases, of course. Yes, please. Uh, Professor Archibald, I have a question about uh, Scandinavian Well, I think that's precisely an example of, uh, of, of what I was trying to argue. You know, I'm not arguing that Scandinavian countries are optimal. I think some of the, their arrangements would be suboptimal. But I think the big picture is very much consistent with what I was trying to argue with the Glorious Revolution. Why is it that the Scandinavians are willing to set up, put up with you know, over 50% marginal tax rates for, you know, uh, moderately high incomes and, you know, the government controlling over 40% of the, of GDP. I think because uh, Scandinavia has some of the strongest democratic and civil society institutions, so people are fairly confident that there is going to be relatively little leakage out of that money. 
So if we gave that sort of power to our politicians in the United States, I think they would run much more havoc than the Scandinavian ones. So, so I think Scandinavians like a lot of the public services that, uh, uh, that the government provides, health care, uh, child care, uh, <coughs> a very generous health safety net, uh, you know, education system that's very, very well designed in terms of bringing the bottom up. All of these are, of course, conditional on the point that, you know, uh, goes back to the previous question. Those are many eth- quite, quite ethnically homogeneous societies, and I think, uh, you know, as ethnic homogeneity declines, I don't know how they're going to cope with some of these problems. But, but those public services, those uh, things that the government provides are highly valued, and the citizens are fairly con- certain that the government is going to provide them rather than steal the money or use them for crazy projects like, you know, Chavez would do and give it to Cuba or give it to FARC or something like that. So it is that knowledge, it's their ability to keep their politicians on a leash that, that, that does it. Now, in my opinion, there would be probably better ways of doing it at the margin than perhaps you know, encourage entrepreneurship at the top a little bit more than Scandinavia, but I think that's second order for the discussion at hand here. Uh, yes, please. Mm-hmm. Many revolutions. So uh, I think that's a great question. <clears throat> we do spend quite a bit of time on this in Why Nations Fail, but of course our explanation may not be fully sort of uh, uh, satisfactory. But, but let, let me go back one step. I mean, it's especially what, essentially what you've described uh, is, is a specific case of a more general theory, which you know, Barrington Moore certainly uh, could get some credit for, but generally is, uh, uh, is, 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 is ascribed to uh, the American sociologist Martin Seymour Lipset, and it goes under the name of modernization theory. And essentially the idea is that 
you know, for things like democracy, or you could extend it for things like civil rights or whatever, you know, uh, all you need is, is economic growth. If economic growth comes, then people ultimately, as they get richer, they're going to want to, they're going to demand these other things, uh, these luxuries like democracy rights and, uh, and, and, and other things, and those things will come automatically. And, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, in, in, in a number of papers, I have sort of argued against that. Uh, and the argument is both theoretical and empirical. Empirically, you know, you could, this is a very simple hypothesis. It's sort of a, uh, you, can, you can easily look at the data. You can ask the question, do countries that grow faster, are, are they more likely to become democratic? And the answer seems to be no. Uh, there is no evidence that, you know, richer countries are more democratic, that's for sure, but that's a uh, result of a long historical process and, 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 and double causation. But uh, just a simple sort of, you grow faster than me, are you more likely to become democratic? The answer is a big no. Uh, and, and it's not so surprising when you look at growth. You know, growth comes in many different ways. You know, Russia grew very rapidly uh, <clears throat> until about two years ago because of the very high oil uh, 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 oil and gas prices. Well, but at the same time as that growth was taking place, you know, uh, the middle class was being muzzled in many ways, and and uh, uh, and, and the money went to kleptocrats and 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 uh, and, and and on oligarchs that were uh, uh, you know uh, <coughs> allied with the state. And that sort of economic growth, there is no simple necessity that that's going to lead to any sort of democratic process. And I think. Uh, the cases that are, I think, more supportive of that would be uh, cases like South Korea and Taiwan, which, uh, just like what you described, you know, they started with uh, <clears throat> uh, certain economic reforms, rapid economic growth for a while, and then democracy. But I think if you look at the details of both cases, what you see is that the process was far from automatic. So, for instance, in the case of uh, South Korea, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, Democracy wasn't just because, like, there was a general consensus that now that the country is rich, uh, there should be democracy, but, you know, there were many protests and mobilization by students and trade unionists, which were repressed, and people were killed and put in jail. The military tried to hang on, and then with the prodding of the, of the U.S., for example, ultimately sort of had to pull back. So, so that is the reason why I think uh, my interpretation is that it's not that China is doomed, but that China, which has achieved a tremendous economic success, and I think a lot of that is not a surprise because it has also changed its economic institutions most radically, but it, it will face difficulties as you move forward between holding on to a political system that's going to become more and more discordant with innovation-based economic growth, new technologies, new products, and reforming or even overthrowing that political system, uh, which will, of course, is a costly and a difficult process, especially with the developments that have gone on over the last two years, for instance. So that that's not a full answer in the sense that uh, I'm not sort of able to tell you when is it that some of these growth processes are going to become destabilized, like in the case of South Korea and Taiwan, and when is it that they're going to be able to continue because of special circumstances like in Singapore. But I think that's, those are the parameters uh, that I use for sort of thinking about that.
Well, thanks so much for coming. Please uh, don't forget to fill in your feedback forms and submit them to us. Uh, and HCA members, please come downstairs and join us for dinner. Thank you. Thank you. Just telephone here. Oh, okay. It's not. Is it yours? Oh, that's... Okay. Hi. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Nice to see you. One of our classes here. Oh, great. Which class was that? Macroeconomic. Oh, great. Excellent. Sure, of course. I'll be happy to do that. Let me just put this away and take my pen out, and then I can sign it. This one's for Sam. Okay.